everybody. In this episode of History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley, we are going to continue our conversation about new scholarship for firearms history. We've already talked to Nathan Gorenstein as well as David Yamane, who have provided you know, two really different approaches to firearms history with Nathan, who's an investigative journalist. He really tracked down a lot of information and history behind John Moses Browning that had never been discovered before. And with David, he as a sociologist immersing himself in gun culture has also been able to kind of backtrack into history to identify previously not discussed versions of that history. And he is an actual academic scholar. So you've got two different types of writers. And then we've also talked in previous episodes about the need for a new vetting system for firearms scholarship. And so we have Nick Jensen Jones on the line. Uh, he's been on before. He is the head of ARIES, the Armament Research Services. And he's got two big things going on. One is Headstand Publishing and Jonathan Ferguson, who was on earlier in the season, said one of his books are being published. But he's also partnering with Danny and the Cody Firearms Museum on a project. Danny, do you want to introduce it? Yeah, so we're working on a revival of a CFM journal. In the late 80s and early 90s, our former curator, Herb Howes, had uh, worked to publish the journal known as Armax, and that was, as far as I can tell, really like a passion project of his that he almost, you know, soul, like, lifted and moved and carried uh, to publication. And it continued for a few years, but as he stepped back from his role at CFM and into the emeritus role, um, they're really, you know, as new curators took over, that project fell by the wayside. And it's a real shame because it was really good content. It was um, stuff that didn't get published um, really anywhere else. So there's some really great articles that are now sort of just buried in that journal and nowhere else. Uh, So Ashley, you and I had talked a few times about, you know, what could we do to revive this? And um, really, it just was never the right time with the renovation. And so since the renovation, uh, we've been working towards that. And as Ashley mentioned, we had Nick on before to talk definitions. And now he's back to talk with us about the process of uh, reviving a journal and publishing good firearm scholarship. So welcome once again to the podcast, Nick. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. So as Danny just pointed out, um, you've been on the podcast before. I have. We had a great conversation about emergent uh, craft production techniques. It was it was interesting. You missed out, Ashley. I did, and clearly, though, I didn't get replaced, so that's good. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. About to be, but that's fine. So we're Nick. We've been talking about new gun owners at this season, and a lot of different kind of circumstances that may attract new gun owners to collecting or museums, we hope. And you are the third in an installment about new scholarship. So we've talked about social history. We've we've talked about sociology and history. And so now we're going to talk about people who are actually creating new venues for that scholarship. So you actually started off before, you know, you and Danny worked on a journal. So why don't you talk about Headstamp Publishing and kind of the mission of that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I've been working in this space for uh, about 10 years now in a sort of serious capacity. Uh, and throughout that whole time, you know, you're always looking for, for venues to publish. If you're anyone like me and you you like getting into the details and you want to put that out there in the world, you examine all the different ways to put your material uh, out into the public domain, whether that's, um, you know, publishing via a, a blog or in videos or podcasts or whatever else. And of course, there's also that traditional academic scholarship route. And that is 
not all, not always as well represented in the firearm space as it is in other disciplines. And I think you know all of us have encountered that at one time or another. Um, and so Headstamp was was sort of in that vein in terms of bringing uh, books to market that were really high quality, uh, engaging books with beautiful illustrations, but also had uh, a strong um, and robust research underpinning them. And then the next step from that was to look at where people could publish in an academic sense. Now, the academic community kind of sucks in terms of respecting gun knowledge. Yeah, I said it. Everyone's making faces at me, but I said it. And, you know, you created Headstamp and we're going to talk about, you know, journals and other avenues to do peer-reviewed scholarship because we pointed out in other episodes and maybe this episode, I don't remember. Um, but we pointed out the fact that the peer-reviewed system is really flawed in the academic community because in traditional university academia, there aren't peers. And I was wondering if you've thought about or have had any resistance or any interaction with the university system in order for them to respect the peer-reviewed system that you guys are creating through Headstamp. Uh, Multi-part question there. I, I guess first I'd push back a little and say that I think there is very good level of respect from the university teachers and, and academics that I've engaged with. I haven't had any issues with that personally. And I think it's, you know, it's two different uh, kind of approaches coming to the table. So I came from a technical background, but most of what I wrote was for uh, government and non-government clients and focused very much on a sort of intelligence analysis approach, which is obviously distinct in many ways from an academic approach. Uh, but I've learned to bridge that gap by, by learning how academia works and working within those frameworks and vice versa. I think when I've worked with academics on projects that have research outputs or, or analytical outputs, they've worked within the framework that, that we've set. So I've been fortunate in a sense that I've worked uh, across a number of different fields and I've worked using different frameworks because of the, the clients that I've worked for and the, the outcomes we've been trying to produce. So that's a long-winded way of saying I think there is good opportunity for collaboration across these sectors. Um, but, you know, as you point out, there isn't a depth of specifically firearms or small arms and light weapons expertise within most university systems. There are some exceptions. Uh, but the majority of academics who are interested in firearms topics generally come at it from uh, a sociology perspective or a criminology perspective, and they don't necessarily understand the developmental history of firearms or the material culture of firearms. And so that's been a key focus for the, the journal that, that Danny and I are working on. Um, Headstamp isn't trying to be a strictly academic output, and we're not trying to work within those frameworks because that would exclude, I think, as, as you understand, that would exclude some authors who don't have those strong academic backgrounds. What we are trying to do is maintain a similar standard of rigor in our internal and external review. So we want to make sure that what we do produce through Headstamp uh, is of the highest quality and that it's supported by um, you know, the, the other specialists in the field who can lend their expertise to an author. So I would sort of separate those two things out. Headstamp, I, I guess I would describe it semi-academic, um, although some of the publications like Jonathan Ferguson's recent book is is very squarely in the uh, the traditional scholarship camp. Um, and some of our forthcoming, forthcoming titles will go both ways. Some of them are very, very academic uh, and some of them are, are much more uh, illustrative, if you like, um, in their style. So Headstamp's sort of in that mid-space, which I think, uh, is a good place to be. It helps us bridge some of those gaps. And then the next the next kind of step up, if you like, uh, towards a more academic output, hopefully, is, is this revitalization of the, the RMAX journal that Danny and I have been working on. And obviously, um, you've been working on Ashley as well, and, and many others. And we'll, we'll get to RMAX details in a minute, but you touched on something there that I think gets back to Ashley's point. So um, 
in some ways in the academic world, there's, there's room to study firearms. If you're say, say you want to know how, um, firearms made it into Libya during the civil war, um, that sort of arms trade or a criminology study about how firearms are used in say U S gang violence, something like that. There's sort of a, there's room for that level of study and there's some room for, um, let's say, you know, something like uh, the arms trade in North America in from 1700 to 1800. Uh, but something like Jonathan's work, which went through head stamp, um, that one, I won't say that there wasn't room totally because you probably could have gotten it through in some capacity beforehand, but that kind of work of a development his- developmental history of something, say, 1850 to about 1950, that one was a tough place, you know, a purely small history of the firearm and development of that firearm itself. Um, in that sort of late 19th century, early 20th century period, um, that one was a lot harder to find, I think. And we've talked about this a little bit before. Um, yeah, no, that, me, that's, that's absolutely the- true. Yeah. Um, right. And I think, yeah, there are ways in which, as you say, there are ways in which you could have published parts of it in an academic format or perhaps even the full thing. Um, but it would have been uh, hampered in some other developmental areas, you know, there, there would have been compromises to be made. And I think that's part of the reason we're trying to yeah, provide some alternative routes for, for publication. And as you kind of alluded to there, uh, and as we'll get to, I suppose, with the Armax discussion, there is that sort of magical 1800-ish cutoff. Um, it's a lot easier to publish academically on, on firearms uh, you know, on, on flintlock or matchlock firearms, for example, than it is to publish on self-loading rifles. So, yeah, there's, there's definitely a distinction there. The other thing I might touch on, which I think probably gets to Ashley's earlier point a little bit, is that there is, at least in my experience, a distinction between the academic communities in the United States and how they handle firearms research and the academic communities elsewhere in the world. And I think in the U.S., uh, you know, for better or worse, the the conversation is is politically charged. And so you do get unfortunately, you know, a lot more resistance to that kind of um, detailed study of firearms. Well, and we've talked about that before, Danny and I, with the fact that it's kind of ironic that America has this quote unquote gun culture that the rest of the world, you know, looks on. And yet we're, (laughs) it's the most difficult to do real, you know, true academic scholarship that's not politically charged, political science, you know, gun laws and legislation oriented, whereas, you know, the rest of the world tends to be more restrictive with firearms ownership, but more open in the university system to have that discussion. That's certainly been my experience. Nick, would you say, would you call it fair? um, Because one of the things that we've talked about on the podcast before and that all three of us have talked about outside of this podcast um, is that because of this sort of dearth of academic engagement with the developmental history that was often filled by collectors and we'll call them, you know, for lack of a better term, illustrative histories, you know, they talk about the development of say Winchester rifles and they have these beautiful pictures of Winchesters and it's, there's some, there might be some sources, there might not be, it's probably got good photography um, or decent photography, um, but it's very generalized. Would you call it fair to say that like head stamp, if not fully academic is attempting to raise the bar for those illustrative histories in terms of source material and, you know, documentation. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, that's kind of what I'm getting at. I I think, yeah, if you put on the the one side of the spectrum, those sort of um, traditionally collector driven works that are very valuable uh, 
but perhaps not as um, academically robust as they could be, academically robust as they could be. And on the other side, you put sort of dry academic work that perhaps isn't as um, instinctively or intuitively laid out and as beautiful as some of the, the other books. We're trying to, to sort of straddle that gap and hit the happy middle ground. Um, the goal really is to provide beautiful, well-illustrated, very useful reference books that are also just a pleasure to read. Well, and you guys just co-curated an exhibition that I was not planning on talking about in this episode. But I think you guys should talk about it because it does get to the point of, you know, what is good scholarship? Because, you know, in the past, it's hard to vet if a collector's book is great or a collector's book is not, especially if you're not coming from, you know, a field of knowledge prior to firearms. So why don't you guys talk a little bit about that exhibition and, you know, how that came to be and what it looks like, but not too much so that people will come to the museum. Yeah, definitely, definitely go and see it. Um, it came to be, I think it's fair to say, Danny, because Danny and I were, uh, <laughs> you know, constantly engaged in these same kind of discussions. We're, we're always talking about how do you get the information out of sources, what sources give you what sort of information, and how do you uh, help the the average enthusiast understand where research comes from. You know, it doesn't pop out of some guy's head into a fully formed book. There's a process behind it. Um, and so I, I think that's where we were really trying to highlight what is the connection between the original uh, primary and secondary source research that's conducted and the final product that you get to enjoy as an enthusiast. Yeah. And so for the listeners that want to see it or might be going through Cody in the near future, the exhibit itself is primary and secondary uncovering firearms mysteries through documentary. Evidence. I was totally going to ask. Unraveling. You Unraveling. Ah, I almost had it. Um, thank you, Nick, for being a much more responsible co-curator than I. Okay. Um, say that title again. Cause I was talking. Uh, Primary and secondary unraveling firearms mysteries through documentary evidence. Uh, so that the exhibit itself pairs objects within the CFM collection and a couple of loaned objects uh, with um, primary and some secondary uh, and even a tertiary source or two, I would say, um, you know, directly pairing them within the exhibit cases. So visitors can see the object and then see um, you know, the relevant source materials. And we also explore, you know, what is, what are these sources? You know, traditionally primary sources are, you know, pieces of paper that you find in libraries and archives and places like that. Making a case also from a museum perspective that, um, and really any research perspective that the artifact is a primary source itself. Um, at times the materials with an artifact are primary sources. So trying to illuminate all the ways that we approach um, what we call in the exhibit, the white room principle of examining a firearm sort of from start to finish. So it'll be up if visitors do listen to this. Uh, it should. We're planning for it to be up until September of 2022. So you should have a lot of time to go see it. Yeah, it's a, look, I mean, it's a small sort of self-contained exhibition, but I think we've really tried to, to cast a light there, as Danny said, on some of the things that are overlooked or, um, you know, perhaps not understood by, by your average museum goer. So hopefully yeah, people can go along, have a look at it and, and understand um, how the information plaques and the uh, the books and the journals and things that are elsewhere in the museum are also, uh, also came into being. I can think of, you know, a couple of people in our field that would probably, that are already doing this type of work that could probably benefit from that ex exhibition. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, to shift gears to RMAX, since we've said RMAX a million times and alluded to a journal, uh, you know, one thing that people may not be aware of is sometimes, and this is American scholarship uh, specifically, it can be really hard to get 
a firearms related, non, you know, political, all that stuff that we've already talked about, like a firearms and material culture uh, article in a journal. For example, Johns Hopkins has the Journal of Technology and Culture, which you would think would be a perfect outlet for firearms. And a couple of years ago, Jennifer Tucker, who's a professor at Wesleyan University, actually created a, both an in-person and then a written roundtable of firearms and museum scholars. And it was, it was rather long, but it was the first time in, oh gosh, if not ever, or in, you know, a decade plus, that the Journal of Technology and Culture had actually allowed that kind of dedication to a firearms article. So while the you know there might be a different in difference in Europe, that's the type of kind of discrimination that we see. I mean, we tried to have a panel with the American Alliance of Museums at a you know at one of their meetings, and they literally told us we had too many firearms experts on a panel about firearms and museums. So there is this inherent discrimination where we kind of have to make our own forge our own path and hope that maybe someday they'll pick up on it. Um, yeah. And so Nick, I'll run down the quick history of old RMAX if you want to talk about new RMAX. Sure. Yeah. Um, so for our listeners, you've, you've probably heard us mention, you've obviously heard it in this episode, but I think we've touched on it a few times before. Um, RMAX was a journal, an academic, well, we'll say academic a journal, an attempt at one um, published by the CFM from about 1987 to 1995, if I'm remembering the dates right off the top of my head. Um, the reason I say attempt at academic is because it was spearheaded by our late curator, uh, Herb Howes. And her, it seems, as best as I can tell um, from the corporate archives and the, the journal itself, it seems like it was not completely a one-man show, but it was his passion project to drive this forward. So um, while there were certain expectations of source material and generally the articles are well-sourced or rely on the artifacts themselves, um, I don't know that there was what we would call a, you know, it, it was not comparable to say the peer review of other journals. Like I'm pretty sure Herb was the peer reviewer. Um, and certainly he was a knowledgeable guy that could, but um that sort of wouldn't meet the threshold anywhere. Um, and I think it was Herb's attempt to, you know, we've, we've talked about this bias towards firearms. I also think to be somewhat, I don't know if this is somewhat accommodating or forgiving or what, but I think it's part of a larger bias in at least American universities and academic journals against material culture. Uh, they much prefer archival publication versus material engaging with material culture. So I think material culture as a whole that we deal with in museums sort of runs into a roadblock and then firearms within that um, runs into a roadblock. Um, but it seems to be Herb's sort of um, battle, one man quixotic battle against the status quo to get fire, additional firearms content published. And it resulted in some really great stuff. As far as I know, it's one of the only places where the Winchester revolvers ever got published. It was the original place that the Burton machine rifle got published that we've talked about before many times um, that I mention every chance I get. Um, in that vein, it, it was very useful for that. So in some ways, it did accomplish that mission. However, um, when Herb left the museum, he kept doing it for a few years, but eventually um, the steam sort of ran out and the journal went by the wayside. And now it's pretty obscure. So... Nick and I um, have been talking and are working currently on bringing back um, this journal. So Nick, do you want to talk about our focus on, on that? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you've, you've summed up the history nicely. I think it's fair to say it was sort of, you know, semi-academic in nature. It's still a research journal. It's still dedicated to publishing original research. And that is at the core of any um, any academic journal. And that's where we're starting from. You know, we want to give a voice to or a platform to uh, original resource, uh, research rather. Um, and yeah, I mean, from our perspective, we want to do that in a, a sort of more contemporary way, in a way that's more aligned with um, you know, current understandings of what constitutes uh, robust scholarship. So we're talking about double-blind peer review for every article. We're talking about bringing in um, a range of you know, external experts with really specific expertise uh, to act as peer reviewers that, that we've identified and started to shortlist. Um, we're talking about uh, you know perhaps a, a more hands-on editorial approach in, in terms of making sure that things meet our standards uh, as they're first uh, brought to the journal and having a, a, an editorial board that helps direct the journal and make sure that we, we have a... Um, you know, a, a broader view of the, the discipline. I think it's probably worth just quickly saying a few words on the, the discipline itself, if you like, this sort of study of contemporary arms. We've we've added the uh, the subtitle AMAX, the Journal of Contemporary Arms, um, to make a point there. I, I think for those listeners who aren't familiar with um, the history of sort of arms and armor studies writ large, it's that's where this discipline of ours sort of originates from, right? There's a natural extension from the people who were studying swords in probably in the 1600s, looking back at uh, classical weaponry, for example, right through to those collectors and researchers of today. So there is a long-standing tradition uh, and, a, and a robust history for arms and armor studies. And we should probably point out two journals in the field that are both very good, and there are more, but the two that spring to mind both in the UK for English language publication would be Arms and Armour, which is the Royal Armouries journal uh, that has traditionally focused on um, arms and armour, but but has you know, increasingly published on firearms, including uh, Danny and my article um, on some much more uh, recent firearms, 20th century firearms. And then there's also the Journal of Arms and Armour Studies, uh, sorry, the Journal of the Arms and Armour Society, rather, um, which is a publication of the Arms and Armour Society. So there are, you know, academic routes. If you want to write, like we say, if you want to write something on uh, yeah, sort of match like flintlock firearms. If you want to look at, uh, like I'm looking at at the moment, uh, ceramic hand grenades, for example, there are venues you can publish those sort of papers. It's much trickier when you reach that that 1800 mark and you want to look at cartridge-based firearms um, or gasp if you want to look at light weapons. You know, if you want to look at a shoulder-fired uh, recoilless weapon or a grenade launcher or something, you'd have very limited publication opportunities. And so that, I think, is where we're, we're focusing our max. Post-1800 or 1800 onwards, um, small arms, light weapons, man-portable weapons, and their ammunition as well. Uh, ammunition, as we all know, is often overlooked. So, you know, if you're out there and you've, you've been sitting on a, an excellent uh, academic research article on, um, you know, 40 by 46 millimeter semi-rimmed grenade cartridges, please come to us. That would be fascinating. Um, yeah, we, we really want to cover that full spectrum uh, of, of man-portable arms and munitions uh, post-1800. And yeah, and that was a helpful point because for our listeners, you know, in this in this sense, the word contemporary does not mean the recent like iterations of right. the SIG 230 that became the Army's, U.S. Army's handgun. It means something after 1800 in the field of small arms. Um, so it's a little bit yes, more broad, but it also incorporates, it also covers those six. So, right. So you know, if yes, you want to look at something and say, count. how is that different to a, a weapon that came out in 1810? That's a great comparative article. Sure. We could, we could have a Simeon North to Sig Sauer U S army handgun Perfect. article if we Perfect. wanted to. 
Yeah. Well, and what's weird is that the scholarship in terms of firearms from that time period, it may be lacking, but I mean, historians are studying World War II. I mean, they study Vietnam. I mean, there's extensive Correct. studies um, and academic works and publications on, you know, these more quote unquote modern time periods, but the firearms information is lacking, which I always say, I would argue with when I see academic scholarship where the person is rather ignorant of firearms technology or firearms material culture, and it shows when you read their work, would they conclude differently? You know, they're kind of larger contextual histories had they actually understood that kind of technology and culture component of, you know, the war or, you yeah. know, American society in the post-World War II period. I, I think even at a really fundamental level, uh, you know, when you read any academic history or read, read a journal article, pick a, pick a journal, read a military history journal article and you spot a firearms error, you immediately start to think, OK, what else has the author missed? And academics know that, right? They're very cautious about their um, their claims in, in all sorts of fields. And they're usually, I, I won't speak for, for all academics because it's not fair, but most, I think, are aware that there are um, pitfalls to overreaching and to not having the correct sources. So generally speaking, when I've reached out to academics in the past and said, look, great article on the Gulf War, but by the way, this isn't correct. Um, they've been very receptive and, and by and large, the response has been something along the lines of, oh, that's what it said in the only source I could find about it. Um, and so this is a, a sort of a step toward correcting that. If you put some um, publication like this out into the academic space, then hopefully future research that's only tangentially related, you know, perhaps uh, military history research, for example, uh, can draw on what we've published and, and get those facts straight there as well. And, and I think that's true of any field, any niche discipline, but I do believe that academics will be receptive to it once it's out there. Well, I think that that, you know, we, Danny and I have talked about this before. I can't remember if it was on the podcast or not, but, um, you know, you, you hit on a good point, which is the fact that, you know, a lot of times when you see this ignorance in, you know, academic works on firearms and material culture, it's, everyone assumes it's malicious. You know, everyone assumes right. it's political and it definitely is with certain publications, but, you know, and, and we talked about this with politics as well. If you've got people doing the research for other people to, you know, make legislation, or even conclude, you know, big ideas in, in history, if there's not a resource to go to for them to find that information, you know, that's not necessarily fair to say, oh, well, you don't know, you know, what the hell you're talking about. And, and it, it comes up a lot because when you don't have the traditional academic source, you know, that someone would go to that is a researcher, you know, they're going to go to the one that might have inaccurate information about guns quicker than they may go to a traditional collector's book that doesn't have the university vetting process. And so, I mean, you're 100% right. If you don't have the scholarship out there, you know, people are really limited in what they can, you know, understand. And yeah, right. Um, I think it's interesting too that we've been talking this whole season about new firearms owners, and now we're talking about new firearms scholarship. And the topic we're on right now is uh, something that is Probably, you know, if we're talking about how firearms history reaches down to the, you know, we're talking about at the high academic level, sort of, we'll call it, um, not quite the ivory tower, maybe somewhere at the doorsteps <laughs> to it. Um, and how that filters down to all these people that maybe they have just got a, you know, a new firearm and maybe they do decide they're interested in firearms history at some level. That's to me where at this level, at least for now, we're probably going to miss them a little bit. Um but I think something like head stamp is probably going to engage with them much sooner than say a revival of Armax, um, because head stamp is 
a far more accessible thing. You know, uh, even Jonathan's book done is on a very, you know, um, rigorous academic level um, is far more accessible through a Kickstarter than Armax is through, um, you know, a journal, a journal process. So that yeah. to me is interesting that Armax is hopefully going to inform an academic debate that will hopefully eventually filter down into a, some will maybe not totally popular culture, but, you know, in a, to a much more um, accessible format in publications that come out of somewhere like Headstamp. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think uh, a good portion of the work I've done on this topic, um, you know, in the sort of arms ammunition space over the last decade has been focused on um, whether intentionally or not combating misinformation or, or putting, you know, easy to find correct information out into the, out into the wild. So, you know, I've worked on developing definitions for, for different types of small arms and light weapons. I've worked on identification guides to help lay people understand the basic identification features of firearms. A lot of that has, has been a focus of my work, and I think this is a natural extension of it. I think, you know, you kind of alluded there, Danny, to something that is critical. It needs to sort of cover the spectrum. Good, accurate information needs to be available across the whole spectrum from a YouTube video or a podcast that's very accessible right through to the driest of academic uh, or technical publications. So we really need to cover the whole, the whole gap. In some cases, I think, sorry, Ashley, I, I think if anything, Headstamp is actually a springboard that was not there before. So, you know, again, going back to the idea of a new firearms owner, maybe they watch a, one of Ian's videos, which are very popular, very accessible yeah, um, and super easy to find on virtually any firearms forum online right now. Um, that might lead them very quickly now to a headstamp publication. Um, whereas in the past, even, you know, something accessible like a form or a YouTube video might have at best led them to an out of print collector's book that costs, you know, $500 yeah, and you exactly. had to go through some who crazy website or eBay auction to get it. Now it's on a much, you know, that level of firearms scholarship and knowledge is a much more accessible thing, which I guess is not really a question so much as a compliment to your hard work, but. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, I, I, and I, you've sort of hit a, a little bit on the marketing strategy, um, but also on, on the kind of principle that underlies it too. Like it should be easy, uh, as you say, for that sort of um, progression to take place. So someone should be able to find a video of Ian's really simply, you know, punch into Google the, the firearm that they're looking for, find a video. Okay, great. The next step, go away, uh, find a headstamp book or, or indeed any other publication that's accessible to them. And then that next step up, I guess, from there is to go to something like RMAX, which is um, hopefully going to be uh, more accessible than perhaps your average academic journal, both in terms of price point um, and, and just how you can purchase one as a private individual rather than having to go through a university library, for example. And then perhaps from there, you might end up with a, a, a conference paper or, or something like that. So, or a really technical, you might start going back to primary sources and purchasing um, outdated, out of print user manuals or, or old Soviet documents or whatever. Then there should be some sort of um, natural progression that's available to people. And part of what I feel really strongly about is making that, uh, that progression a lot more transparent, a lot more obvious to people. I think, you know, no one looks at one of Ian's videos and expects it to be um, incredibly detailed, full of footnotes, uh, you know, as, as researchers say Jonathan's book. Um, that's that's good. It's good that we have different kinds of media for people to consume. It's, we don't want them all to be at that very top level that's inaccessible to your average uh, newcomer. 
Well, are you able, Nick, to kind of tease a couple of the articles that are going to be in the first? Yeah, issue? I can. Um, there's, I mean, I'll, let me grab uh, the contents and see what what are some good ones to bring out. I mean, one that jumps at me. There's one on um, a U.S. made. Uh, dart firing pistol from the cold war era that was used to deliver biological or chemical agents um that is the the level of scholarship on that is fantastic it's a really interesting piece of sort of forgotten cold war history um and when we talk about biological and chemical weapons we think about mass effects you know whether that's a cluster munition or a dispersal device of some other kind is usually looking at targeting populations and cities and this is a really unusual way in in which people look to uh, essentially assassinate people using um biological or chemical agents. That's interesting. Jonathan Ferguson touches on some EM2 um, history, which of course he does, but it's uh, an excellent an excellent research piece about a little known uh, series of trials. There's some discussion from uh, Matt Moss uh, of um, the Winchester uh, Repeating Arms Company's exports to different uh, powers during the, the First World War. Fascinating. And then uh, Ashley's got her own little piece in there, which is excellent about um, <laughs> sort of the, the pitfalls of uh, recreating historical firearms. Which I think I don't want to sort of spoil too much more than that on that, but it's, uh, that's an interesting read as well. And then we've got Uzis, we've got East German uh, AK-74 variants, we've got book reviews, um, we've even got me yammering on a little bit in my editor's preface about why this is all important. So... I do think we've we've managed to put together a really interesting first issue. We've tried to cover lots of different periods. We've tried to provide short articles, long articles, um, you know, all different types of firearms in terms of operating systems. So yeah, I, I think it's it's a, a very robust first issue, and I'm excited to get it out there. And oh, <laughs> Jinx, you owe me. Okay. Um, I was going to add the caveat to our viewers that it is coming soon, but. Uh, currently working its way through a museum bureaucracy. So we'll see that. So no check you out in five years. But it is it is on the way. You can certainly go to www.armaxjournal.org and have a look. As a well, much and, better marketer than me. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to ask what the website was. But <laughs> and, and people, can also, people can also learn how to submit their own articles, right, right. through that website? Yeah, we have a full author's guide you can download. Um, which explains the process. And we'd, we'd love to have articles from all sorts of contributors. You know, we'll show you in our style guide uh, and our sample articles what the standard is that we require. And if you can meet that, we don't mind what your background is. Well, I think that that's a, probably a good place to wrap up. Um, so th- the cool thing is, is that, you know, there are a lot of younger people Maybe like we're younger, although I don't sound like I'm younger right now. Uh, <laughs> and there's a lot of younger people that are really pushing for an academic approach uh, to firearms history. Yeah. And like Danny said, you've also got the, you know, the ability to attract new gun owners now to that history that maybe Google uh, that, you know, something about that history. They see Ian, they learn about head stamp. And then ultimately the real goal would be that trickle down effect that within the next 10, 15, 20 years, you know, academia shifts to studying the firearms history in a much more technical manner, which then ultimately goes to people like teachers or museum professionals, which gets filtered to the public. So I'm excited that there's, you know, that Danny and Nick were able to reboot RMAX. And I'm excited for, you know, anything that comes of that, because I think it's so important to basically create an avenue for people to also go into this field and 
continue to contribute by creating scholarship themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think if we can dispel some of those pervasive myths that are out there, that would be um, a great added bonus. Uh, and I should say just quickly, we've mentioned Jonathan Ferguson several times now. Um, Jonathan, I'm very, very, very fortunate uh, to have Jonathan on the, on the team assisting me as the associate editor uh, of RMAX. He's one of the most knowledgeable small arms specialists in the world. So he's, he's a great asset to the team. And I think he and I have spoken a lot at length about trying to stomp out some of these um, pervasive firearms myths that are out there. And hopefully this is another, another step toward doing that. Well, and that was probably a better bio than we gave Jonathan when he was on earlier in the season. So yes, I got his title wrong. <laughs> We're terrible. He's the keeper of firearms, like keeper and, artillery. Of arms and artillery. It's like the best title in the world. I mean, it's, it's the only person I look at his job title and think, oh, I'm kind of jealous. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Well, <laughs> well, thank you so much, Nick. And thank you, Danny, for the work that you guys are doing in the field. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Right. See ya. My absolute pleasure. See you guys. Next week on History Unloaded, it will sadly be our season finale. But not our forever finale. Allegedly. Allegedly. We'll be taking a look at new gun owners, and ultimately the future of gun owners. So be sure to check it out on all your favorite podcast platforms. And learn about Danny's fear of a robot apocalypse. It's rational.